Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. Now, the White House agrees with us that this is probably the only chance until 2023 when the National Defense Authorization Act will pass. Um, But by that point, these folks will be out of status. They don't have time to wait. And, And Ken, the reality here, bud, is that veterans are dying. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today, Sean Van Divers, a U.S. Navy veteran and the founder of Afghan Evac, an organization that helps coordinate efforts to evacuate our allies from Afghanistan and resettle them safely. Sean, we spoke briefly yesterday and we scheduled this interview for today, Mother's Day, because we don't have time to waste. Tell me what's going on. That's right. We don't have time to waste. And look, I live in San Diego and I live, uh, you know, my, I have a two-year-old. And uh, my mother lives in San Diego also. So this is so important that I had to come out here over Mother's Day. And we're kind of, we're, we're at the end of the rope for this effort, right? So I can talk a little bit about, um, I can talk a little bit about Afghan EVAC and a little bit about kind of what this, why the Afghan Adjustment Act or an adjustment of status and all of the various other things that are in this negotiated text, um, if that's helpful for you. Yeah, it is. I, I want to get into the Afghan Adjustment Act, uh, but just just to be clear, you are in Washington D.C. right now, um, advocating, lobbying for the inclusion of some language in a in a bill that is about to be voted on. Language that is going to be critical for um, for Afghans that we have successfully evacuated, and uh, and 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 many more who are depending on the United States. Uh, tell us about the Afghan Adjustment Act. Sure, sure. a couple of things. So I would say it's advocating, not lobbying. We don't get paid to Got do it. this. Everybody's a volunteer. Um, so Afghan EVAC is a, a coalition of 180 plus organizations that uh, span uh, kind of the entire American experience, right? I like to say, if we're talking politics, it's from the squad to the Freedom Caucus. Um, these are folks that are uh, surely lots of veterans and national security professionals, frontline civilians, and other folks who saw what was happening in August were impacted in some way by Afghans and stood up and said, no, we're not going to let our country fail at this. Um, since August, we've been working together. We built a, uh, we built a partnership with the State Department, DOD, White House, and more. Uh, kind of acting as added capacity. And the most important thing that we're working on right now, um, after we brought 80,000 or so folks here uh, since August, mostly in August, is this adjustment of status. All of these folks came here outside of the normal immigration system because we brought them here, right? So these folks didn't come here on their own. And right now, because they're outside of that, that uh, normal immigration system, the options that they have are really limited. And because there's no country anymore for them to go back to, um, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. So what this adjustment of status would do at its core is bring these folks into eligibility for lawful permanent residence or a green card. 
And uh, there's precedent for this, South Vietnam, other conflicts that we've had where we've brought a lot of people. Um, the, addition, the other things that it would do is I know that some folks are concerned about security. And I mean, we're all concerned about security, right? So uh, the only way that these 80,000 folks get vetted again is through this adjustment of status. And that's included in the legislation. Um, there are other uh, improvements to the SIV process and the P1, P2, like United States Refugee Admissions Program uh, is all in there, as well as uh, uh, an additional uh, category for SIVs for those who stood shoulder to shoulder with us, Afghan Special Operations Forces, t female tactical platoons, uh, the Special Mission Wings, various uh, folks that kind of believed in the idea of America, stood up fought for their country, changed their lives, and are now at great risk because of the Taliban taking over. So what's notable and why there's such a burning platform here is that uh, you maybe heard that the president requested uh, that Congress do some supplemental funding to aid Ukraine. And so this, this we call it the Ukrainian supplemental. Um, this is a bill that Congress is working on that is about how we stand with our allies. And in the request, for the second time, the White House requested this adjustment of status. Now, the White House agrees with us that this is probably the only chance until 2023 when the National Defense Authorization Act will pass. Um, but by that point, these folks will be out of status. They don't have time to wait. And, and Ken, the reality here, bud, is that veterans are dying over this. People are so invested in this. We have a resilience duty officer in our coalition because of the great moral injury that has come from this. And that's not even touching on the Afghans here who feel left alone, cast aside, forgotten uh, all over our country. We're failing at the mission of welcome. And we can't, our veterans, national security professionals, this cross section of America, the soul of America, if you will, um, that are that is present all across this coalition, we can't turn our attention to welcome until we make sure that the government has it right on this adjustment act and the government has it right on, on uh, the kind of primary goal of ours, which is operational uh, uh, relocation. We don't say evacuation anymore. It's normalized. It's relocation. We're just, you know, relocating the, the folks that stood with us. You just said that veterans are, are dying because of this. I want to make crystal clear for our listeners what you mean. And it ties to, the moral injury that so many have experienced watching the fall of Afghanistan, watching so many of, of those who stood shoulder to shoulder with us uh, be abandoned. Veterans are taking their own lives out of a sense of shame, right? That's right. They feel like, what was this all for? Why did we, why did we go over there and serve? And the reality is, is that there was a good mission, that, that the work that we did with Afghans absolutely matters and mattered. And um, the special relationships that we've all developed with Afghans, like I got involved because my buddy Lucky was stuck on a mountain or a goon. And I never served with him in Afghanistan. We met in San Diego. And the bond between veterans and Afghans and national security professionals and Afghans, the more than 1 million people who deployed in uniform or out in support of this mission is so strong that We've got folks that are really struggling. I've all across our coalition, we have myriad stories of veterans who are 
struggling with purpose. They feel great purpose from the work that we've been doing. But there's a lot of folks that are out there kind of on their own. And we get stories every week of a veteran who's attempted to take their own life, a veteran who's died by suicide, of Afghans who've died by suicide. And our country has a moral obligation to get this right and an obligation to to this men and the young men and women that we send to fight our wars down the road. I'm not sure how any of our allies, anybody that we need to stand with us in wartime, won't look back at Afghanistan and say, that's the fate we have? No thanks. So I'm really happy that the White House included that adjustment of status in the uh, or the, the adjustment in the Ukraine supplemental, but the work that passing this law won't even, that, that's just beginning the work, right? We've got to make sure that that the crisis hotline has the capacity that it needs because it's not just veterans doing this, right? It, we need to make sure that the crisis hotline has Dari and Pashtu speakers. We need to make sure that our local government folks uh, are ready for this. You know, it, it takes, I used to run a uh, veterans nonprofit focused on reducing the stigma associated with PTSD, and look, this stuff manifests over time. This stuff takes sometimes 12 years to, to really manifest. And we've got to be ready for this. And we've got to be ready. I mean, our country wrote a big check, $3 trillion, for our wars in Afghanistan. And what we didn't really think about is the cost on the back end, right? And like, for me, a lot, I think a lot about how important it is that we fund the back end of war just as well as we fund the front end of war. We fund training for folks who are processing out of the military as well as we fund training for those that are processing in. And that goes for the intelligence community, the diplomatic community, the aid community, everybody. But Ken, the reality here is veterans are taking their own lives because they feel like we failed and they tried and we've been carrying the load for the government. And certainly, I don't want to take away the work that the government did. 125,000 people evacuated um, in August is a lot. But the story that's not being told is the great impact that our organizations, that, that Americans all over this country standing up and saying no thanks, had on that and has had in the nine months since. I look across our coalition every day and I see a lot of pain. Mostly it's pain. And then we get those glimmers of hope. The glimmer when we have those successes that are few and far between, we get these moments of sheer joy when that one family that we've been working with for you know six months gets out. That one family they move down the road from one of our folks and and they get to see them all the time. And then there's a, a mission of of integration and 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 growth as a family and restarting the American dream. But the reality is. Every Afghan that has come here, almost to a person, is impacted by our bureaucracy in a way that's just unacceptable. And that's why this is so important. That's why I took a leave of absence from my job to do this. That's why so many people are still spending 40 hours a week or more on this. I mean, we did a poll recently in our, in our call, and I was shocked that more than half of the coalition was spending... 40 hours a week or more on this, which is wild. This is supposed to be a sustainable part-time thing that we do as a public service, and it's just not that yet. This is Peter. 
And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Can you share with us um, one of the stories of these Afghan families that has has made it out. Just to personalize it for folks, uh, my family, the Harbaugh's have uh, have taken on uh, sponsorship responsibilities for a, a family of 13. And I mean, you're right. There are moments of, of pure joy when we have the occasional wins, you know, getting them into the right preschool or something like that. But the bureaucracy we have had to deal with is, is mind-blowing. Are there stories that stand out in, in your mind with the families that you've helped personally? There are so many stories. Um, I'll share the story of the family that I got involved to help. Um, my buddy Lucky, I talked a little bit about him earlier, is a guy I met through civic engagement in San Diego. And Lucky is a incredible human being. He's very entrepreneurial. Um, he's He was a, you know, a, He's from Argoon. He's a wonderful human being. And uh, his name is Lucky because he uh, was blown up twice and still had all his fingers and toes. We met when we did a press conference about the um, the Trump's immigration policies in early 2017. And they were particularly impactful to interpreters. Um, Lucky made a big impression on me because I'm I'm a big fan of civic engagement. Like I don't care what party you come from or where your political ideology is, but I do think that um, civic engagement is really important. And he was civically engaged in San Diego as well as in Afghanistan, and he stood up and fought for what he believes in. Uh, fast forward several years to 2021, and. Uh, President Biden makes the announcement that we're going to be withdrawing from Afghanistan. The local paper requested that I help put together some some op-eds. So I wrote one and Lucky wrote one. And while we were going through that process, Lucky told me he would be going back to Afghanistan. And initially I was like, bro, what are you doing? You can't do that. Um, and then he told me, you know, but my, my kids haven't seen Afghanistan. My mom is back there. She's very sick. I got to go get her set up and I get it. Um, but I, I've taken to equating this to Texans, right? If you told a Texan or an Ohioan that they can't go back to their state in six months, you know that every Texan, every Ohioan would go back and, and run out the clock, right? And then leave when they couldn't be there anymore. 
And that's what Lucky did. Lucky's plan was to fly out on August 28th. And as the the airport, as the country started to fall, I texted him and said, bro, are you okay? Like, do you need anything? Can I get you flights back? Or like, what's going on? And I didn't hear from him for a couple of days. So we like started asking around to his friends. And then on August 14th, he texted me and said, brother, I'm on top of a mountain in Ergun. I can't get cell reception. This is the best I can do. I can't call you. Uh, the Taliban have us surrounded. Uh, we are running out of ammunition. I think I'm going to die. Will you please help get my family back to San Diego? That's we grant my last wish and please help get my family back to San Diego. And that's what brought me into this ecosystem. Now, Lucky is a resourceful dude, and he's lucky. He took a jingle truck from his cousin, and uh, he had recently gotten his California commercial driver's license. So he knew how to drive one of these big trucks. And uh, he talked his way through 10 Taliban checkpoints, got back to Kabul, got to the airport, took him forever to get into the airport. And then he was able to get on a flight, but it was, it took like five or seven days for him to get back to the U S because it was just building the capacity for that, uh, which, you know, we can Monday morning quarterback why the capacity didn't exist all day long. But that was, I mean, the hardest part of Lucky's journey started after he got his way through the Taliban checkpoints. And that's a travesty. Now today, Lucky is a pillar of his community. He moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, he, he opened an Afghan halal market because there was no market to serve the Afghan community there. And there was a whole, there's thousands of Afghans there. Um, I went to visit Lucky recently. And what I found there in Fort Worth, Texas, was that the Afghan, nobody had come to visit them. I, I Like we had a big lunch with Afghan community leaders. And I said, well, where's everybody else? And they said, well, they're back at, you know, the name of their complex. And I said, well, do you guys want to go there and talk to folks? You know, I, I have been working on the front lines of this for a long time. I have answers for questions about their family back in Afghanistan or, you know, the process here. And so we went out there and I got to tell you, it broke my heart, Ken. Um, they said that I was the first person to come visit them. They said that their case managers were ignoring their phone calls. They said that the, again, communications and bureaucracy are, are the, the big problems here. And they were having a hard time getting their social security cards because they went to the hotels they were at, or they went to wherever they were in an interim status, as well as their emergency or their employment authorization documents. So these folks are having a hard time working. They're getting fired from their jobs because they don't have the proper paperwork from our government and the backlogs are, backlogs are so high. Um, and then in Texas, the state doesn't participate in the refugee program. It's run by refugee resettlement agencies. So it's hard to get state benefits like food stamps to get on your feet. Um, and so people are just kind of hanging in the wind. And I want you to think about what it must feel like for these folks who signed up for to serve alongside Americans in Afghanistan. And we told them, serve with us for a year, serve with us two years, and you can, you can become an American and realize the American dream. You stand with us, we'll stand with you. And they get here. And they can't get their paperwork in time. They can't move into housing because it's so expensive everywhere in our country. And this, the, the supplies are low, right? And there's a homelessness crisis. And, 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 and the benefits that they're getting aren't, aren't enough. And the resettlement agencies have been decimated by four years of Trump, who kind of just cut off all refugees coming here. 
so that the way that refugee agencies are funded, they, they need people to get the funding. The funding is tied to the amount of people. So three or four years of, of not having anybody come in plus three or four years of nobody or three years of nobody running the SIV program resulted in these massive backlogs. And now folks have been waiting for years. Folks have been waiting for months here at home and they're just struggling to get by. And this is not the American dream that we sold them. This is not the idea of America that anybody wants to believe in. And the good news is, is that back in August, this was a bipartisan, nonpartisan effort to help stand by our allies. The legislation is being negotiated on a bipartisan basis in the House and the Senate. And so long as we can get folk, the, the deal is that the committees of jurisdiction have to allow this through. So that's um, Representative Nadler uh, is the chairman of the judiciary in the House and Representative Jim Jordan from right there in Ohio is the ranking member. So they both have to sign off on this. And then Representative, and then Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois and Senator Chuck Grassley are the chairman and ranking member in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so they have to sign off. Right now we've got sign off from Nadler and Durbin and we're working on getting sign off from um from Representative Jordan and Senator Grassley. Uh, so I hope that your your listeners will call and let them know that they, they want to see us follow through on our commitments and make sure that everybody's safe that's here, right? The, the vetting is really important. And I know it's been important to our Republican colleagues who have been negotiating this stuff. So um, I just, I got to tell you, I've never been a part of something so American as this effort. And I served in the military for 12 years, left and right, Christians, Muslims, Jews, everybody, a cross section of America standing up, doing the right thing, because an American handshake means something. And look, Lindsey Graham is supporting this. He, we were in Sedona recently and we ran into each other and, uh, my buddy Jack and I talked to him about the importance of this. And he shook my hand and said, I agree with this. I'm going to be there for veterans. I'm going to be there for Afghans. And man, if you'd have told me that I'd be shaking Lindsey Graham's hand and, and working on something together a year ago, I'd have told you you're crazy. But look, this effort, this idea of standing, of, of being who we say we are, this idea of, you know, there's a statue in New York that says, bring us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. What population is more deserving of that than a population fleeing a totalitarian regime after we lost a war and folks who stood by us in that war, folks who, who believed in the idea of America and now their lives are at risk and they're counting on us to, to do the right thing. What happens if this legal limbo uh, is not addressed? I'm not going to bullshit you, Ken. What happens is you have more dead veterans and more dead Afghans. You have... Folks who are, who have already experienced great trauma, feeling like their adopted country has left them behind. You have folks that serve in uniform and in active duty military who feel like government leaders prioritize partisanship, partisan bickering over American values. You have Afghans incurring great legal fees to go through the asylum process and there's no guarantee. And like, what happens if they don't clear, where do they go? 
right? Like there's nowhere for them to go. They're, they're stateless right now and they're only here temporarily. And I want you to think about what it would be like if you were in their shoes, if you had stood by American soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, whatever. Um, if you had stood by an American service member, saved their life, and you came here, and you were trying to restart your life and realize your American dream, how would you put down roots if there was nothing permanent for you? They're stuck in this temporary limbo. And frankly, we don't, I mean, we need to vet these folks again, right? Like the, the chaos of August brought in a lot of folks that, that like it was kind of whoever could get to the airport. And unfortunately, that means that there's a lot of folks that maybe didn't serve alongside us, but they made it here. And that's a failure that, that can be addressed later. But we're, we can't just throw these people out. They don't have anywhere to go. So we've got to at least look at them one more time. They've all been vetted. And you can go to our website, afghanivec.org, and, and see the infographics around the kind of vetting that everybody got. But um, if we don't pass this, they're not going to get another round of vetting. They're not going to get the benefits that they've earned. They're not going to get the permanence that they need. And frankly, really important to Afghan Evac is that all of the things that we need to the bureaucratic fixes that we need to ensure that we're able to continue relocating folks, the folks that stood with us, the folks who have earned their spot here, we're not going to be able to get through that. There's things that only Congress can do. And look, the White House did their part. They requested this. They did their part on this. They requested that we include this stuff, and they're supportive. This is now on Congress, and we need Congress to step up and protect this from the partisan politics, protect this one thing needs to be a politics-free zone, and we need to do the right thing for the allies that stood with us, just like we're going to do for Ukraine. And this Ukrainian supplemental is the only opportunity we have until 2023, and we've got to take it, and we need people to put aside their differences and 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 get on board with this, because we're not going to forget. Veterans are going to show up, and we know who's blocking this, and we want to work with them. And look, faith leaders, veterans, folks all across this country agree that we've got to do this thing. It's the right thing to do. There's precedent for it. And we are putting ourselves, we're putting our national security at risk by not doing it. And I just can't, I can't imagine why anybody would want to block this. Well, let's, let's make this actionable. It sounds like the two main barriers right now are Chuck Grassley uh, and Jim Jordan because of their roles on their various judiciary committees. Jim Jordan's number I'm going to pause so you can write this down if you're listening. Jim Jordan's number is 202-225-2676. Chuck Grassley's is 202-224-3744. We'll put those in the show notes, but the vote on this is is when, Sean? How much time do we have? So it's kind of unclear, right? Like it's it's... The deadline that we have right now is this coming week. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, but it's it's a bit of a moving target. The The deal on this, though, is as soon as it's in, it's in. And we know that it has the support. We know it has bipartisan support. We know it has the votes. We just got to get it past Chuck Grassley and Jim Jordan. And then and then we know it's, it's a done deal. All right. Well, I'm rooting for you, Sean. We'll get this out there as soon as possible. 
please keep up the incredible advocacy that you and an Afghan evac are leading. Thank you so much, Ken. Thanks for having me on, on the show today. Thanks again to Sean for joining me. To learn more about the policy discussed in this episode and how you can help, check out our show description or visit afghanevac.com. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.